Good morning, church. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Amen. Well, if you take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 1, I've continued to state how excited I am to jump into this exposition. I have to say up front, I mentioned this to the first service, for the grammarians out there, or you English lovers, I have to apologize up front. Uh, I've, I've repeatedly talked about how verses 3 through 14 is one sentence and one complete thought by Paul in the original language. I am going to take verse 3 separate and include it this week. Sorry. I know maybe that's not grammatically appropriate, but we'll continue to connect the dots as we flow through. I have two reasons for doing that. I I hope it will serve as a fitting conclusion to our exposition today and then another jumping off point next week. That said, the title, as you can see for today, is The Bedrock of Christian Power. Now, um, for our geologists in the room, or our, I mentioned English lovers, now I'm talking about science lovers, you school teachers are just loving it right now. Math, I just got to come up with a math, a math illustration somewhere along the way. But for our geologists in the room, more than likely you don't need for me to define what bedrock is. Nonetheless, for most of us, What exactly is bedrock? How does it contribute to the metaphorical picture that I'm using for the title for today? And I will not use a Flintstones illustration, I I promise. (laughs) I was tempted. I seriously even Googled it thought about using a friend's Flintstones illustration. From a simplistic perspective, though, bedrock is the hard, solid rock underneath the surface material, such as soil or gravel, where bedrock is solid at its core. Soil is typically loose. For my friend and lead geologist, at Answers in Genesis, Andrew Snelling, the study of geology is extremely important in examining God's creation. Some of you have probably had the benefit of going to the Creation Museum or the Ark Encounter and seen many examples of how bedrock speaks to God's creation and the flood and all that we see in the Genesis account. Outside of geologists... Bedrock is important for others as well, specifically civil engineers. Accurate assessments of bedrock are essential in building safe structures. We all are thankful for civil engineers when we drive across bridges that are anchored in bedrock. Why is that the case? The reason stems for the stability of the loose material on top compared to the strong core of bedrock. You see, soil, that material on top, 
It's not strong enough to, to keep buildings or structures from sagging or sinking or even worse, falling. In order to secure safe and sound construction, large buildings need to be anchored in bedrock. Some of you are probably already going to where I'm next, where I'm going next, but Jesus used a similar illustration, did he not, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7? He talked about a spiritual foundation, so to speak, and used an illustration of building on sand or rock. Concerning the sand, what did Jesus say about that spiritual foundation? He said, great would be its fall if it was built upon sand. So, when we think of the bedrock of Christian power, what is it that at its core provides stability and foundation for us to withstand the destructive winds of culture or place or time that we all encounter on a regular basis. As we discussed last week, Ephesus was indeed facing many potentially destructive winds. Whether it was the ethnic tension within the church between Jew and Gentile, uh, an unhealthy infatuation with the supernatural, as they were very in tune with magic, as we examined and looked at. Or it was the Roman ruler cult within the Roman Empire during this day and age. Or, for that matter, just their own power and success. If you recall, they were the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire during this time. That said... If there's one threat that's existed since the fall, certainly was at play in Ephesus and will continue to be the case for the rest of history and at least until the new heaven and the new earth. It's nothing more than the self-autonomy of man. That is to say that man is in control. That man is the distributor of authority or power. That man self-governs himself. This, friends, is equivalent to building a life foundation within topsoil. Let's call it that. It will inevitably sink. It will inevitably shift. It will inevitably fall. For the unbeliever, that fall will be great. A fall that will be in an eternity in hell. As the unbeliever in the face of God's gracious offer of rescue from slavery to sin, he stands as though his own merit is enough. And great will be his fall. He's nothing more than a cracked vessel of sin. A broken foundation with no protection against that great fall. For the believer, praise the Lord, 
Nothing will snatch us out of God's hand. Our salvation is eternally secure in Christ. That said, though, God indeed does discipline those whom he loves. Who are we to boast in anything? Who are we to say in and of ourselves through our power and through our strength, we weather the storms of life? Cursed be that thought. What have we received that has not been given to us? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And as we begin this exposition of Ephesians, we'll see Paul begin to lay a bedrock for Christian power, a foundation of stability, a theme that shouts from the rooftop. God is the initiating source of Christian strength. That's what we will see clearly on display here. This, beloved, I can't emphasize enough the empowering aspect of this understanding. Not just in doctrine and theology, but in love and unity and in life application. Remember those items as we discussed our expectations last week for the letter as a whole. Nonetheless, don't take my word for it. Would we allow the plain sense meaning of Scripture to shine forth this mighty bedrock for Christian power, the absolute truth that God is the initiating, and that's the key word, source and strength for all Christian practice and obedience. To put it another way, we might say that without him, being the standalone, first initiating cause, there'd be absolutely no strength whatsoever left to our own devices. This is what we'll see from Paul as a proper understanding concerning this bedrock for Christian power. This morning, I want us to answer the question simply, what are some examples of God's initiating power? With that said, I'm anxious to get started. Would you stand with me, please? I'll read Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Our first example of God's initiating power in our lives, it serves to create this bedrock, this foundation that's immovable, is number one, the calling 
of God. We'll see this in the first half of verse 1. And when you think of the world's authority, how is it typically communicated and used? From a negative perspective, whether it's a domineering CEO or a prideful politician, it's typically employed with an authoritative influence. An authoritative influence that's designed to solely produce submission to my authority. There's no debating this individual's power and authority. That individual certainly knows it. And unfortunately, often, nothing will stop him from abusing it. Kind of goes back to our common threat and problem that has existed since the beginning in the Garden of Eden is the self-autonomous nature of man, that that man is in control, that man is self-governed and the distributor of power and authority, and yet this is the polar opposite of the Christian's strength and authority and power In the beginning of this letter, Paul clearly communicates his authority as an apostle of Christ Jesus. But where does that authority, where does that power come from? He states in verse 1, by the will of God. Concerning this initiating act of God's calling. I want you to listen to several other cases of Paul's understanding of this initiating calling of God in his life. You can reference it later. You don't need to turn there. In Romans chapter 1, as he began that letter, he said, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In 2 Corinthians, he uses the same verbiage, called as an apostle by the will of God. In Galatians, we hear even more clarity to this initiating calling of God. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 reads, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men. That word agency relating to the action of men. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Even when we think of Paul's first experience of being called while on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9 verse 15 we read, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, referring to Paul, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So this common theme for Paul throughout 
nearly all of his writings, and specifically dealing with the context of Ephesians, we will see throughout, is this idea of being called by the will of God. Now, we've mentioned this several times in other expositions, but even this word called, used quite often throughout the New Testament, is effectual in its power and sense. That is to say that refusal is not an option. What God begins, He will bring to completion. This calling has nothing to do with the agency or action of men, but is initiated by God according to His sovereign will. This is important, so critical for us to grasp. Perhaps there's no greater display of this than Romans chapter 8, verse 30. We've mentioned it often, but it just comes into play in further explaining the meaning behind this text as well as numerous texts that combine to create this analogy of faith that we have in the Scriptures. Paul in Romans 8.30 said, And these whom he predestined, he also called. There's that word called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of these active verbs initiated by God, guaranteed to come to completion. We'll get there in more detail in several weeks. But listen to this initiating, perfect and purposeful will of God in verse 11 of chapter 1. When he says, Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So with all of this clearly understood, still though, how does it contribute to the Christian's authority and power? How does it contribute to this bedrock foundation that we stand and live upon? Let me give you an illustration first and then ask, answer that question. Now for those of you in the room that are extremely driven individuals, and I know many of you are that, you know that you still wrestle with the flesh. So if you're tempted to think that this is not you, you know the reality of the situation. When we establish our own power and strength, there can certainly at times be a neglect of the mission and tasks of life that we apply ourselves to even for the most driven of us. Think of it from this perspective. Unfortunately, at times, in and of our own strength, we become the authority. We become the power. We become the evaluator of our work, the reason behind it all. Given our fallen nature, there are several issues with that. First relates to just the simple temptation for slothfulness or laziness. 
It happens to the best of us, if we're honest with one another. We are the captain of our ship in that situation with no one evaluating the work at hand. Or secondly, there can also be a temptation to lower the standards, if you will. Compare that to a soldier under authority. You know my affinity for military illustrations. I had to go there. A soldier who understands the necessity of orders given. A soldier who operates under the authority of a higher power. A soldier that understands that his work is being evaluated consistently. Paul describes this dynamic perfectly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. When he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Some translations say, For necessity is laid upon me. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have the stewardship entrusted to me. Here's the point. It's because Paul had nothing to do with his calling. That necessity was laid upon him. Compulsion was laid upon him. He understood the authority that he operated under. He had a greater sense of stewardship to not allow that authority to be displeased with him. What about that question, though? How does it contribute to our authority and power? Paul, whether acknowledging his authority as an apostle by the will of God, or when it came to preaching the gospel, understood that that authority was only even possible through the initiating work of God. What's more, he fully understood that this couldn't help, but by compulsion, by necessity, drive him to practice what he preached. And for that matter, to encourage others to do the same. He understood the bedrock, the power and the authority undergirding it all and which he operated under. As for Paul, he understood that even in his authority that he had been granted by God, he was nothing more than an ambassador for Christ. He was a mouthpiece. He was an emissary to speak forth what his Lord and commander had commanded him. As for us, might we live with even greater confidence in all areas of Christian obedience because of this bedrock for Christian power, the reality that God called us when we had nothing to offer in return, that God effectually chose us when we were enemies of Christ. Now, 
None of us have been called to be an apostle, as Paul was called, capital A. Nonetheless, if you're in Christ, each and every one of us have been called to be messengers for him. Another translation of that word, apostle. Would we find power, would we find strength every day in the fact that God first commissioned, charged, and called us apart from any merit in and of ourselves? And that by His authority and His unchanging will, we might find power to not grow weary and doing good work, as he said to the church at Galatia. To find power and strength in whatever your calling is, whatever that might be. And that said, whether it's the initial receiving of this calling, or the lifelong commitment to fulfill it, It's impossible to do so without one key ingredient, and that's our second example here of God's initiating power, and that's number two, the grace of God. Look again at the second half of verse one, and then verse two. He says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. If one were to choose two words that would distinguish Christianity from all other false religions, one could certainly use grace and faith. These are but two of the five solas of during the Reformation. As important as and critical as they were, they communicated the fact that simply put, a true biblical gospel is nothing but salvation by grace and faith alone. That said, why was it important during the Reformation to use this word alone? First and foremost, it communicated what Scripture teaches. God is the initiating distributor alone of grace. Secondly, it helped to protect the church during this crucial time from the false gospel of grace and faith plus works. That's another one we can say, curse that thought. That is a different False gospel. Here in the second half of verse 1, Paul speaks directly to the believers of this church and how they received their standing in Christ. Notice he calls them saints and then faithful in Christ Jesus. That word saints can also be translated as, as holy ones. These are set-apart believers. That 
phrase faithful in Christ relates to being united in Christ. And yet, within the context of this letter as a whole, this church would have certainly been aware of their previous standing from chapter 2, which speaks about the fact that they were children of wrath by nature. Nonetheless, now, united with Christ forevermore, Christ, the God-man, the one who is holy and pure and just and without sin, now looks upon them as children of God, as a brother, as saints, faithful in Christ. How could this be? Given their life, which was previously dead in sin, well, in verse 4 and throughout, which we'll examine in more detail next week, Paul clearly communicates the answer. God chose them before the foundation of the world. He initiated grace upon a people who were unworthy of anything but eternal damnation in hell. Children of wrath by nature. In the same way, his calling was initiated by him alone. According to his sovereign will and agency. Purposed to bestow grace on them. Wow. Regarding that grace. Look again at verse 2. He says... Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's certainly, in this verse, a common introductory greeting that Paul likes to use. But it conveys so much more than just an introductory greeting concerning this initiating power of God's grace. What is grace but unmerited favor? Why is it unmerited? It's because in and of ourselves, we are helpless. We are hopeless. Children of wrath... By nature. Or as he says in chapter 2 as well. Sons of disobedience. Following the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself. We desperately need unmerited favor. Speaking of that unmerited favor and the grace of God. In chapter 2. Verses 4 and 5, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here, even in chapter 1, verse 2, he states in perfect harmony with, with what we just read and throughout Ephesians and especially throughout the Gospel of John and many other books of the New Testament. We see that grace and peace come from God, is initiated by God. Now, before we touch on this title that Paul uses, which is somewhat unique and very significant and important for us to touch upon, I want to briefly address just two aspects of this initiating grace which will be helpful for us. There's certainly the initiating act of grace in saving us, making us alive. All of us can sing forth the praises of God concerning that, those of us that are in Christ. We just read that in chapter 2, verse 5. We could go to Romans 3.24, which talks about the justification of God that was initiated by Him in our salvation. Many examples. That said, I don't want us to miss God's sanctifying grace as well. For example, look over at chapter 4. As Paul transitions from all of this deep, rich doctrine and theology in chapters 1 through 3 and then transitions into much practical life application in chapter 4, verse 7, concerning this initiating, sanctifying grace of God in our lives, he says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Oh, how we need grace daily. Amen? We could go to one of my favorite passages of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, and, and we see this initiating, sanctifying grace in Paul's weakness as he pleads with God, Lord, please take this thorn from me three separate times, and yet what is God's answer? My grace is sufficient. Sanctifying grace is something that is often, unfortunately, overlooked. Indeed, God initiates saving grace in His people. What's more, He's initiating, present tense, sanctifying grace in our lives as well. So much so that you, brother and sister in Christ, can experience the inevitable peace that flows forth from that grace. Even in the verse, as he says, grace and peace to you from God. That peace that surpasses all understanding in which we often find ourselves clinging to and in need of. So, and let me 
backtrack with that in place to this title. He says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see clearly in this title two persons of the triune Godhead in God the Father and Jesus Christ. And it's important for me, I need to make just a a brief comment concerning this because it will be massive as we unpack the rest of these glorious blessings that flow forth in verses 3 through 14. As Orthodox Christians, we affirm wholeheartedly the doctrine of the Trinity. That yes, God is three separate persons in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But yes, at the same time, He is one in essence and being. There's so much I want to say here, but I cannot get ahead of myself. That said, the one point I need to emphasize and just plant this seed for you to hold on to as we unpack greater significance of the Godhead represented in this section to come because we will see each member of the Trinity in action, in salvation, past, present, and future. But that one point, is this certain reality that although God is three persons, we must never contradict the absolute unity, perfect unity of the Godhead. Just know this. As we begin to see this play out throughout this text, Understand that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one in essence and being, never contradicting one another. We might say that they will never be on different pages, so to speak, if I could put it in human terms. To say that God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the the Son will never have different objectives As we work through these weeks to come, that will be a critical point for us to understand. At least for now, hold to the unity of objective purpose within the Godhead. And you'll see why that's important as we unpack salvation, past, present, and future. Be that as it may. Before we move to our third example, let me offer one thought of application concerning God's initiating grace. When you think of his saving and sanctifying grace, might we remember the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. He was forgiven so much But yet when offered the opportunity to forgive, what did he offer but contempt? 
pride and harshness. And then in Matthew 18, verses 33 through 34, we read concerning this type of response to grace and forgiveness. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Beloved, let that be a warning for us. Better yet, from a positive perspective, once again, as we consider the grace of God in our lives, initiated by God alone, might that drive us to give grace? So many applications of what that could look like. For those in whom we disagree with, for those in whom are hard to get along with, for those in whom we have differing opinions, whatever it may look like, might we be a people of grace? One thing is clear from Scripture concerning the fruit of giving grace. As we discussed out of the book of Acts, as I referenced maybe a couple weeks ago, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that is our third example of God's initiating power. Number three, the blessing of God. And we've stated this multiple times. And as I, as I alluded to, I know grammatically maybe it's not the best thing to do, but I, I think it will be good for us. This verse is the beginning of an extended description of just glorious blessing and truth. To be precise, as I stated last week, 202 words in the original language in one sentence. Just a symphony of praise, if you will, flowing forth from Paul. pray that in using this it will be a fitting conclusion for today but even a jumping off point for us next week that said look again at verse three he says blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ you notice Paul uses a form of the word blessed three times within that verse. The first in, in the original language is it's not a verb, but in essence, this is what he's communicating. It, it is a form of a, a charge in a verb form to say, bless the Lord. My mind wants to go to the song, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is in me, bless his holy name. We are to bless and extol and magnify the name of Christ. Why? Look what Paul says. Because God has blessed them. And notice, it's in the past tense. We'll see more in detail in this next week. But this is not just the past tense 
that one can remember. This is a past tense and the annals before time began. Within the triune Godhead, perfectly united in one essence, in one being. Likewise, it's every spiritual blessing. Blessings that flow forth in the rest of his chorus of praise that we will see and unpack one by one as we work through. Blessings such as divine election, redemption, adoption, providence, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And he says, bless the Lord because of it. Not to mention, these blessings are in heavenly places. Contrast this to the world's desire for a somewhat generic term such as blessing. Should be a term just for us, but often co-opted by the world. The priority of blessing here is not money, comfort, power, or health. This is about more of what truly matters. For some of you here in a room this size, some are suffering even now as we speak. For others, times of trial await you. Don't ever forget the spiritual blessings and heavenly places that belong to you brother and sister in Christ. Blessings initiated by God that far surpass any light, momentary affliction of this world. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul describes this as such when he says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The surpassing riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Beloved, know that in whatever circumstance life brings for you, you can certainly, indeed, find grace in the moment. So much so that you can echo that 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, and say that His grace is sufficient 
for me. I will boast in my weaknesses. Therefore, the power of Christ may rest upon me. I can persevere. I can make it. However, and far more important, know that your affliction is only producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all compare. An eternal weight of glory. This is God's calling, God's grace, and God's blessing upon your life, even in the midst of the darkest times. Through that, you can certainly bless the Lord because of his calling, because of his grace, and because of his blessing in your life initiated by him alone. You can certainly sing forth a symphony of praise. To close... I want to leave you with Paul's application of emphasis within this great sentence of verses 3 through 14. He begins with it in verse 3. Two separate times within the middle. And then bookends it in verse 14. By saying we are to bless the Lord to the praise of Of his glory. Makes me want to shout for joy right now. Do a little hallelujah dance. Next week. We'll begin. This chorus of blessing. And examining. Our salvation in eternity past, initiated by God alone because of his great grace, his great love, and his great favor for you. Bow with me in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, We come before you here this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, bless your holy name. O God, would you transform and renew our minds through the preaching and teaching of your word. We thank you for scripture alone. We thank you for grace alone. We thank you for faith alone. We thank you for the glory of God alone. In Jesus' precious and mighty name we pray.